Thank you. Well, it was way back in the fall of 2013 that we started the Gospel of Mark. I couldn't even remember when we'd started it. I went and checked. This morning, we're going to finish this story. If I have to keep you here all day. Here we are at the climax of Mark's story. It's that, you know, I chose the Gospel of Mark because I think the Gospel of Mark is probably the most foundational discipleship story or text that we have in all of Scripture. And so for the last couple of years, we've been journeying through it. And we've taken some breaks and done some other series in the midst and tried to keep it fresh. But we've continued our walk through this basic discipleship text together in the Gospel of Mark. And, and so maybe, maybe just as we finish today, let's just do a little quick review of where we've been. Some of you are thinking, where we've been? I wasn't even there. I hadn't even heard of the Carrington Covenant Church back in the fall of 2013. And I know some of you hadn't. But that's okay, because we can actually summarize this book fairly easily. The first half of Mark's gospel really focused on the question, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Who do you think he is? Who is he? And can I trust him? Really, the first half of Mark, that's that, that, every story you come to, Mark's trying to show the people, uh, trying to show us as readers, and, and Jesus is trying to show people who he is, what he's like. He's announcing that God's kingdom has come, and so what we what begin to see emerge, and, and Mark is really careful about this. He wants to set, he sets up his whole story so that we see Jesus through the lens of a king that's come. And we talked a lot about that way back then. And we emerged from the first half of Mark with kind of a simple summary that Jesus is a good king and he's trustworthy. We can trust him with our lives. And it kind of climaxes in the middle of the book where Peter finally acknowledges, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been expecting. And it's right at that moment, it's like a hinge in the book. It's right at that moment that Jesus begins to tell them, now that they understand he's a good king and he's trustworthy, it's right at that moment he begins to tell them what that actually means. Because it's right at that moment for the first time, even though he's alluded to it before, this is the first time he gets really explicit, yeah, I'm the Messiah. And what that means is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to be whipped. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be hung on a cross and I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. And that really confused them because they had a vision of what the Messiah was like, right? And it's kind of a mix between our vision of a mixed martial arts fighter and some ancient cavalryman, maybe some ninja type guy who's going to lead these armies and going to defeat the enemies and he's going to crush all those people that have been holding them down for all these centuries and finally we're going to be free. And that's the image they had of a Messiah. And so when Jesus, when they finally got the fact that he's the Messiah, and then he begins to tell them that he's going to suffer and die, like every other person that had gone up against Rome, get hung on a cross, well, they had no, they had no room for that in their paradigm. And so they, they actually couldn't figure it out, couldn't understand what he was saying, didn't get it over and over again. And he did it over and over again. He would, he would draw them aside and he'd say, look, I want you to understand what's going to happen here. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to, be, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to be killed. 
And they just couldn't fit that into their paradigm. But over and over again, he was showing them that I am a king. I am the deliverer who has come. But the way I'm going to bring deliverance, the way I'm going to defeat my enemies, the way I'm going to uh, uh, create freedom for you and a new life for you, the way it's all going to happen is not going to be according to violent, you know, armies marching in and clashing with swords. It's going to be through my suffering and through my death. And they did not get that. And we saw the conflict increase, especially in and around the temple the last few chapters. And then last week we saw how he had, he had finally come to the point where it was right down to the last hour and everyone left him. Everyone deserted him. Everyone who promised they'd stay was gone. But Jesus was faithful because he knew that the only way he was going to bring victory, the only way he was going to defeat the powers of darkness, Rome is nothing compared to them, the only way he was going to bring true deliverance and freedom was going to be through his suffering and death. But that he would rise. And so he stood tall and firm. The big theme that Mark's been working with all through, mostly through allusions, mostly through Old Testament scriptures and pictures, is, is that Jesus is this king. But he, even though Jesus is announcing a kingdom, and even though he had an inauguration ceremony that, that had all the, the, the coronation elements when he was baptized, and even though this is going on and on, he's never been so explicit about the kingship of Jesus that he is right here at the climax of the story. He's never specifically called Jesus a king, even in the text, in the story. But in this climax, what we're going to hear today, it is drummed over and over again that this is a king. And the way he's bringing deliverance to his people is exactly, and the way he's being enthroned, and the way that he is coming into his kingdom, and the way he's bringing life and freedom to his people is like this. And it challenges not only their paradigms of what a true king looks like, but it challenges our paradigms of what God's kingdom looks like, what it means for Jesus to be our king. And so today, I want to invite you to hear the story. For some of us, this is an old story. We've heard it a thousand times. It really is an old rugged cross that we've sang about. For others of us, this is still a pretty new story, actually. It's a story that you've kind of heard now a few times, but you're actually going to hear it today, and it might be one of the most extended times you've actually heard this story, and I, I know that. Others of you, it's an old story, but it's more like a fairy tale story now, or a story that kids read in kids' books. And you have, it's been a long time since you've connected or reconnected with this story. Wherever we're at today, my prayer is that as we hear this story today, we would see with clarity who Jesus is as king. That we would see him as the king who loves us. See him as a king who stepped into our shame and brokenness and sin. And see him as the king who has defeated our enemies through his suffering and death. Because the question we're landing on today is the title of our message. He might be a king, but is he your king? Let me just pray, and then we're going to get right into this story. Jesus, you are the king. And today we see you enthroned in this story. 
as the King who entered His glory through suffering and shame because of your passionate love. Today we see you in your story standing alone, paying the price, stepping into our place. And I pray that we would have eyes to see and our hearts would be open to respond. That we would see you clearly this morning through your story. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read the story. We're going to read Mark 15 and then just into the first part of 16. And um, here's what I want you to do. As you hear the story today, I'd like you to locate yourself in the story. Uh, That sounds kind of weird. What do you mean locate yourself? There might be someone in this story. There might be a part of this story. There might be a character in this story that you feel really drawn to, that you really resonate with. Go with that. Imaginatively go with that. Who in this story really resonates with you? There's going to be a lot of different characters. So locate yourself in the story. And then from that location, ask yourself, what kind of king do I see when I look at Jesus? What kind of king is he anyway? We're just going to read through the story today and see what God has to say. Starting at chapter 15. Remember, he's all alone. To find chapter 15. Oh, there it is. Jesus is all alone. Peter has denied him. It's been an all-night trial. And here he is. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, that's the whole kind of leadership group within the Jewish uh, religion at the time, they reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. He was the governor at that time in that area. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. There's the first mention of it. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate 
released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. What kind of king is this that's starting to emerge? What kind of king would take the place? This is how Mark wants us to see it. What kind of king would take the place of a condemned criminal? The story goes on. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Mark wants us to see at this point Jesus the King being mocked as a king. And yet it just resonates out from the story that this is the true king who is coming into his kingdom. That this is the way it happens. That this is the way sin is dealt with. That Jesus takes the shame to himself. The shame that you and I have maybe carried all of our lives. That this Jesus, this king, steps into our place and takes unto himself all of our shame, all of our humiliation. That he who is the true king is mocked as a king for you and I. What kind of king would do that? They led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which we almost know for sure, would have been part of the early church because of the way that they're named, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Roman soldiers could do that. They could stop you with what you're doing, say, put down your stuff, carry this for a mile. They could do it. So they commandeer Simon and he carries the cross. I've often thought about that. It was the turning point of his life. and He was just coming in from the country. Didn't even know what was going on. Some of you are like that. Some of you found yourself suddenly in contact with Jesus and you weren't even aware that anything was going on until after you'd met him and you realized my whole life just changed because of that encounter. That's Simon. He carries the cross for Jesus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. 
He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. That last comment, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. The reality is Mark wants us to see that it's because he's willing to stay up on the cross that he even has victory in the first place. If he had been so weak that he would have been taunted and he would have come down from the cross, everything would have been lost. But he hung there in apparent weakness, this king, enthroned in his glory, achieving the very thing he had been sent to achieve, being the king we needed him to be, but no one could see that. It wasn't his weakness that kept him on the cross. It was his strength. It was his passionate love. It was his commitment to see you and I delivered from death. So he hung there. That's the kind of king he is. Are you finding yourself yet in the story? Those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. He was getting it from the right, from the left, from below. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And Jesus is crying out because not only has he got it from the right and the left, not only has he got it from his enemies who surrounded him, but now his own father has turned his face away from him, has forsaken him. He's on the cross. He's enthroned on high. He's become the king. He's had everything heaped upon him. And the very person that he's done it for has turned away. Who can't look. And he feels forsaken, left alone. The only one left standing. And now he's nailed to a cross. Can you imagine? I can't. But this is what kingship looks like for Jesus. This is what it looks like for him to be your king. For him to be our king. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Because of how he said it, they misunderstood. Maybe he was mumbling, they're not sure. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on the staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, this trained executioner, this man who had seen multiple criminals die in the same way, he stood there in front of Jesus. When he saw how he died, he said, Surely, this man was the Son of God. Why would he say that? There was something about the way Jesus died that so struck this hardened, 
conscience-seared thug of the Roman government, that he would look at Jesus and be the first person in the Gospel of Mark to move beyond Jesus as the Messiah, to move beyond Jesus even as King, and to call him the Son of God. Which, by the way, was treasonous for him. He was the first one to acknowledge that because, you see, Caesar is the Son of God. Other gods are the Son of God. Not that guy that we just killed. Mark's doing some powerful things in here to help us see what kind of king Jesus really is. Surely this man was the Son of God. Over in another building, unbeknownst to those standing around the cross, a curtain has ripped. A big, thick curtain. A curtain in the temple. A curtain that has separated people from the inner sanctum, both symbolically and in reality, so that unclean, sinful humans couldn't somehow stumble into the holiness of God and be consumed. That Jesus, upon his death, forever eliminated the barrier that existed between us and our Father, between us and God. The temple of the curtain was ripped from top to bottom, forever opening up the way back to God. What kind of king would do that? What kind of king is this? Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with them to Jerusalem were also there. All the men were gone, but the women were there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked him for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he had already died, was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb out of the rock. When he rolled a stone against the entrance, then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They would have followed Joseph with the body. A king has died, right? That's what Mark wants us to see. This king who's been enthroned, this king who stepped into the place of a criminal, this, this king who accomplished victory through his death, this king who provided access to our father through his suffering and his shame and the last cry and his being forsaken, all this stuff mounts up together. This king has done everything possible for us to be reunited to God. This king is dead. But I wonder if Mark isn't wanting us to see that a king is now resting in his victory. Because see, all along, Jesus emphasized his suffering and his death and his betrayal and his disciples couldn't get it. But he always added at the end. And on the third day, I'll rise again. That though the suffering and the death 
of this Messiah King is a dominant theme in, the, in, in how Jesus is going to accomplish it. He always ends by saying, but that won't be the final bit of the story. I will rise again. And so here he is in the tomb, but no one's expecting him to rise. Here he's placed in the rock, and it's, it's got to be done in a bit of a hurry because sundown's coming, and, 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 and it's going to be Sabbath day, and they can't do anything with the body. Joseph, a leading council member, is probably, well, he has. He's made himself unclean, actually, by touching this dead body, so he won't be able to participate in the Sabbath. They don't want the body still hanging there, so out of respect, he kind of comes out of the, the, the closet. He's been hiding. He's not been showing people what he thinks about Jesus, but he finally comes out and boldly asks Pilate for the body to show that he, 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 something's gone wrong. But I'm going to show honor to him. This is not what we expected, but we're still going to care for him and these women are there. Well, for a day they all waited, right? They couldn't do anything. For a day they waited. And I wondered what that day was like for all of them. How much tears were shed on that day? How numb did they feel on that day? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how Peter was feeling on that Sabbath day when Jesus was in the tomb? Can you imagine how Joseph was feeling? Can you imagine how Mary Magdalene, his own mother Mary? Can you imagine how this centurion, I wonder what this centurion, not a Sabbath, he wouldn't recognize Sabbath, but I wonder what he was thinking on that day. Was he really the king of the Jews? Was he really the king? Was he really the Messiah? All seemed lost, and yet we can see that it's just a king resting in his victory. Because the story's not over yet. Very early, when the Sabbath is over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, and these ladies are mentioned quite a number of times in this section. In a book where Mark often doesn't name anybody, he names these women over and over again. It's another sign of it being an eyewitness report. It's another sign that this wasn't a story made up because we know how prejudiced those folks were back then. They would not have picked these women to be the primary witnesses of what's going to happen next, but that's exactly what happened. And so they take this place of prominence as being the people the first people to receive the news of Jesus' resurrection. Listen to this. When the Sabbath is over, Mary, Mary, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body very early on the first day of the week. Here it is, Sunday morning. Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. They were waiting all through the Sabbath day. They were waiting for that sun to rise Sunday morning and they were off like a shot to the tomb to care for Jesus' body. Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Big rock, right? Little women. How are they going to do it? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. 
Remember what he told them on the night he was betrayed? Do you remember last week's passage? What's the first thing Jesus said? He said, you will all fall away. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Remember that? The hope in that? Of him knowing they would betray him and yet him planning for their restoration afterwards? Here it is. The exact words. And he singles Peter out because I think at this point when he would have said generically the disciples, what would Peter have thought? Well, I'm not one of them anymore. Because what I did discounted me. But here Jesus singles Peter out just so Peter knows, no, no, you're still. You're still in. You're still with me. So tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's where Mark ends. A lot of your Bibles will have an extra few endings. Those extra few endings were almost certainly added at a much later date. This is like the broken off ending of Mark. We know from the other stories how it all played out and that's probably how some of the gaps got filled in here. But here, the news comes that the king has risen. Just as he says he would. Said he would. Then after accomplishing everything he set out to accomplish, after enduring the suffering and the shame, after being enthroned in this brutal, unexpected way, he had risen. What kind of king is this? What kind of king do you see? Where do you find yourself in the story? When I look at this story, I realize that Jesus, the king, at every level of this story, even though many of the words, every time I think the word king of the Jews is said in this text, it's said tongue-in-cheek, like the person saying it didn't really believe it. But Mark wants us to see Jesus as the true king through the mockery, through the suffering, through the shame. He wants us to see Jesus saying, this is the kind of king I am. So that all the things we learned as we saw Jesus heal people and deliver people, as we saw Jesus meet people where they're at, as we saw him look into the hearts and the minds and the lives of people and know their suffering and say, it's okay. You can come. You can follow me. That this Jesus, who we came to understand was good and trustworthy, showed that ultimately on the cross. That that's the place that we fix our eyes when we want to truly know what kind of king this Jesus is. And when we ask the question, can I trust him? This is the image that Jesus wants us to see. This is the story that Jesus wants us to look at. That when we're wondering if he's a king we can trust, we're to fix our eyes on this king who took the place of a condemned criminal, who stepped into a place of someone who deserved death, and we're to recognize ourselves in that story and say, that was me. Jesus took my place. A sinner condemned unclean, as the song said. He took my place. He stepped in without a word of his own defense. He stepped in to my place. That's the kind of king he is. So in those times when I'm shaky, and I'm not sure if Jesus is really trustworthy, I'm not sure if he's going to lead me to a good place, I look at this story and I realize this is a king who endures suffering and shame, who was mocked 
by soldiers, mocked as a king. He was the king. It'd be one thing for you and I to be dressed up in a purple robe and mocked as a king because you and I know we aren't kings. But he was the king. The rightful king of the universe. The rightful king of the world. The rightful king of every nation. The rightful king of the Jews. And he endured it. So when we're wondering if Jesus understands our shame, when we're wondering if he looks at us and he's disgusted by us, when we're wondering if there's anything we can do to reconnect, we look at that story and we realize Jesus knows it all. And he endured it for us. He took it to himself. He knows what it's like to be shamed. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be belittled. And we look at that king and we realize, if that's the kind of king he is, I can trust him with my shame. I can trust him with my brokenness. I can confess to him. I can be honest. I don't need to hide. Because that's the kind of king he is. When I look at Jesus, I see a king who is willing to be forsaken on your behalf and my behalf. Each one of us face each day the choice, will we trust this Jesus? When you look at Jesus' willingness to endure all of this suffering, but ultimately to be forsaken on our behalf, there's nothing, there's nothing more trustworthy or trust-building than that. There is nothing you can't entrust to Him. Your life, your kids' lives, your career, your future, your priorities, your health. There's nothing you can't entrust to this king because he has taken everything to himself and gone into the very pit of hell for us, being forsaken from his own father so that you and I could be reunited because it's at that exact moment that he feels forsaken, that he dies, that that curtain is ripped, that that barrier is eliminated, that we have full access passes to the father's throne room. And we don't have to wonder can I trust him anymore? Because we look at this story and we see this king, this kind of king, this king who did everything for us. I I don't have to wonder if I can trust him. This king who rested in the tomb rested for me. This king who rose victorious on the third day rose for you and I. And his call to the disciples is a call to us saying, I will meet you there. I have that plan of restoration that I put in place before I suffered and died. Before you screwed your lives up. Before you went away and forgot everything I taught you. Before you you fell down. And you and I can name those things in our lives. We feel like, I failed. I can't can't do it anymore. I I screwed up. I I forever... You're like a Peter who thinks, I've denied him three times. When I said I wouldn't do it, there's no hope for me. And we hear Jesus call his name out just as he looks at each one of us and calls our names out and says are you kidding me do you think i endured all of that just so you could let your petty crimes stand in the way of a relationship with the father do you honestly think that your sin is deep enough your betrayal is hard enough that that you've done something greater than my sacrifice can cover i don't think so and so jesus says i'm gonna meet you i've risen again And he's calling his disciples to meet him. He's calling his disciples to become these witnesses of his life. 
of his suffering, of his death, of his way of kingship, but of his life, his resurrection life, which has been given for them. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. It's the kind of king that Mark wants us to see. It's the kind of king that we're called to follow. And our life, our life as a church, our life as individuals, the way in which we follow this king looks an awful lot like the way Jesus operated as a king. What that means is we don't suddenly follow the risen king with a sword or manipulation or using power games to to show other people the truth or the life or who God is. We realize that as we follow this king, we follow him in the same way through our own suffering, through our humility, through giving up our rights to serve one another, through laying down ambitions that have to do with my life and my priorities and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. You're the king of my life. And I'm going to let you lead me in the way that you lead as a king because you're entirely trustworthy. The questions for me as we finish today, I think there's four of them. They're interrelated. You know me, I couldn't settle on one thing. But we'll stop soon. The question I had for today, for all of us, and for me, is if Jesus really is the king, the question comes down to our personal lives. Is he your king? I think that's what the Gospel of Mark's all about. I think that's what this story's all about. But we can sit and look at the story and read the story and hear the story 8,000 times. But really, the question at the end of the story is, is he your king? Is he my king? Is he our king? Not just a king on a cross, not just a king in a story, not just a thing we read to our kids, but is he our king? Is he our leader? So, four questions as we finish today. The first one I think we ask when we, when we hear this story is, will I bow? I don't like to bow. Who likes to bow? You can hit it once more, Owen. There we go. I don't like to bow. I'm my own man, right? I do what I want to do. I'm in charge of my life. In the words of John Bon Jovi, it's my life. I don't like to bow to anyone. But I do think this is a main question of the story of Mark. When we come to the end, when we see this Jesus enthroned on a cross, we have to ask, am I going to bow to Him? Am I going to bow my knee to Him? Am I going to let Him be my King? Or am I going to resist and say, you're not trustworthy, I don't want to follow you where you're leading me, I don't want to go where you're going. We have that choice. Will I bow? It's pretty clear, actually. It's very challenging. It's a daily choice. But there are moments in our lives where we have to say, I'm going to bow to this king. I'm no longer going to try to be my own king and make my own way. I'm going to come under the leadership of this Jesus, seeing how he accomplished all that he did, seeing how he, he lived, seeing how he healed, seeing how he delivered, seeing how he loved, and ultimately seeing how he suffered and died on our behalf, I'm going to bow my knee to him and I'm going to let him be my king and know that he's not going to manipulate me. He's not going to crush me. This is a, this is a king who was forsaken on my behalf, who was crushed for me already. This is a king I can trust and so I'm going to bow 
That's the, the first question, I think, that we're asked from this story. Will I bow? The second one is, will I trust? They're related, of course. But for some of us, we've so long wondered. We've heard this story a thousand times, but we've so long wondered, if I really bowed, would Jesus mistreat me? Would he take me somewhere that I'm not willing to go? And right at the heart of things, it's a question of trust for us. And I think if there's anything this story does, it reveals a king who is so trustworthy that you can be so confident that when you trust him, he will never fail you. He will never leave you. Even if everyone else around you ducks out and hides, this Jesus will remain faithful. It doesn't mean that when you bow to him and you trust him that life is awesome, but it does mean that he will bring you through and he will bring about your transformation. He will lead you in whatever comes because he is utterly trustworthy. And so the question is, will I trust this king? The next question that comes along is, will I belong? This to me is about recognizing his king This king is leading a kingdom. And his call to these people as he met them and as he healed them and as he taught them was to get in on what God was doing. To belong to the kingdom of God. To forsake the kingdoms of this world. To forsake the kingdoms I've created and say, I'm only going to have one priority in life and it is going to be the pursuit of this king and his kingdom. Will I belong to it? Will I bow my knee? Will I entrust my life? Will I get in on what God is doing? Will I be identified as a member of His kingdom, a citizen of the Jesus way? Will I belong? And for some of us, we've been waffling, we're not sure, but we've been around long enough now to have a picture of who this Jesus is. And today might be the day where you need to decide You know what? It's time for me to ante up. It's time for me to get in. It's time for me to bow. It's time for me to belong by saying yes to Jesus and agreeing to follow him. And then the final one, final question is, will I tell? That's where the story ends. The women are terrified. They don't say much. But I like actually how Mark ends in that abrupt way because it leaves us hanging a bit. It leaves us asking, will they tell? We know they do. But it asks us the question, are you going to tell? Because if this story is anywhere near true, and if you're willing to bow, and you're willing to trust, and you're willing to belong, then the real question is, how in the world could you keep it silent? How in the world could you keep that to yourself? when we finally understand what this king has done for us and the life-changing work he did on the cross and rose again from the dead, I mean, try to keep your lips shut. And so the question I think the story asks is, will you tell? Tell with your life. Tell with your priorities. Tell with your mouth. Will you be a person who lives out under this kingship of Jesus in such a way that his good news, the good news of his kingdom, is just literally pouring out of you? In your relationships, in your family, at your workplace, on Facebook, 
It's just pouring out of you as you point people towards this King who has made all the difference. Will I bow? Will I trust? Will I belong? Will I tell? Those are the questions we have at the end of this story, Mark. Because if he's the king, if he's your king, then I think we only have the response of bowing and trusting, belonging and telling. I think that's the only option before us. He is the king. But is he your king? Today I'm going to do something very different for me. (laughs) I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And so I'm actually going to pull it old school here and ask if you'd shut your eyes and uh, bow your heads. And this is just to allow some of us, it's a a hard thing to uh, at first sort of stand out in a crowd. And so this allows people to respond. I want to first of all ask if there's people here today that have been in that place where they've been wondering, waffling, but are today in a place where they're saying, you know, I want to I wanna bow, I, I want to I belong, I want to say yes to Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe a recommitment. But I'm asking if there's anyone here today that would like to commit to follow Jesus by saying, yes, he is the king, but today he's my king. And I want to profess that. I want you to raise your hand or look at me or something. Indicate that for me. Okay, thanks. Anyone else? Good. Anyone else? No pressure on this. This just allows you an opportunity to respond. Okay. For those of you who have indicated that you'd like to do that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if there's others here that would like to pray along, that maybe lifting your hand this morning was a little too much, but you'd like to pray a prayer of, of committing your life to follow Jesus or recommitting your life, I'm going to just lead you in a prayer, and you're all welcome to pray along silently with me. Dear Jesus, you suffered and died for me. And I believe that. And Jesus, today, when I look and see what you have done for me, your willingness to die for me, your willingness to suffer for me, I want to say that I bow to you as my king. And I want to belong to your kingdom. And so I'm saying yes to you today to receive forgiveness, to receive your resurrection life. And I ask today that your Holy Spirit would come to fill me, to wash away my sin, to reorient my life, to bring healing and grace to me. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and thank you for rising again. In your name we pray. Amen. Just keeping your heads bowed for another moment. There's those of us who have followed Jesus for a while, but we admit that we've become pretty shy about it. Maybe we've been disconnected from this story. And as a result, we've kind of forgotten that to be under this king means that we actually need to follow this king. Maybe it's become just a story for us, but today we've realized that 
we realize that. We realize it's just become a story for us. And so I'm asking you today, if there are those among us who follow you, follow Jesus, that if you want to say, today I've realized, and I, I've recommitted to following, to, to, to making him my king. I've recommitted to being more active in telling others about him, being that witness that Jesus has called us to be. I'd like you just to raise your hand. Thanks. Good. Would you all stand and let's pray together. Jesus, today we've heard your story and we stand acknowledging you as the king. And for those of us who've made a recommitment today to be a people who live under your authority, who tell with our lives and with our mouths and with our priorities of your good news, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would fill us and anoint us to be your people wherever we go. For us as a church, Jesus, we just stand to acknowledge that you are the king. You are the king who stepped into our place. You're the king who has called us to follow you through suffering and into life. And so by your spirit, we ask that you would fill us as the church to continue to be your people, filled and sent by you. In your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Our team's going to